You can stay standing for just one moment longer for our scripture reading today, uh, which comes out of Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 7 through 30. So let's hear the word of the Lord. And he, being Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is in your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miracles, miraculous powers, are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to take your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. As she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked him, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, because of his, but because of his oath and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent out an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Let's pray. You can be seated. Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, It's good. All of it is good. The challenging parts, the interesting parts, the gruesome parts, all of it we know, God, that you have given to us uh, to edify us, encourage us, rebuke us, train us in righteousness. And so, Lord, we pray that the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead who sent out your word powerfully among the first hearers of the gospel, that same spirit who lives in all of us who are believers in you, that same spirit who will be alive and active today to stir our hearts to know you and follow you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you are a uh, Clemson football fan, I know the last two weeks have been a little nerve-wracking for you and even a little bit disappointing. Uh, I don't see anybody nodding, so I guess I got all Carolina fans here today. Uh, but for those people, apparently, uh, that are Clemson fans that I've heard of, uh, your Heisman Trophy hopeful 
Trevor Lawrence has been out with COVID, and that has thrown a little bit of a wrench in the spokes uh, of the, the Tigers' plan for another national championship. And so his backup has had to start the last two weeks. His name is DJ Ui Angalale. There, I said it, and I did practice. But from now on, I'm just going to call him DJ. Uh, I'm going to stick with DJ. So uh, yeah, I know if you're a Clemson fan, you're, you're mainly worried about that one loss the first time in years or whatever. But I, I want you to think about for a moment just this, this unique window here where Trevor has to step away and DJ had to step in because I think you're going to see some parallels to, to the passage uh, today. So DJ was recruited into Clemson as the next generation quarterback, right? And he's a five-star guy. He's, you know, all these accolades. They're expecting him to take over the reins once uh, Trevor is gone. So for months now, he came to Clemson back in January. For months now, he's been learning the system and uh, watching everybody. But surely the best way he's learned is by watching Trevor, right? Watching Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence is expected to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. And so he is, you know, at least according to, you know, whoever calls these things, the best of the best right now. If you're going to learn under anybody, he's the guy to learn under, right? So DJ's been learning, been taking some reps. He's, he's had a little bit of practice. But two weeks ago, he got called on a little sooner than expected. He was going to be the next guy, but for two weeks, he had to be the guy. For two weeks, all the spotlight that's been on Trevor had to be taken off because he was, he was out. He, one, day, one week, he wasn't even on the sideline. He wasn't even there. All the spotlight had been on him. But for two weeks, the spotlight, all the focus, all the attention is on DJ. And in many ways, it was good preparation. Because yes, Trevor's coming back and all the spotlight will be back on him starting this coming week. But once Trevor's drafted, then it's DJ's turn. He's got to step up and he's got to take the reins. Now, why do I figure all that out for you? That's kind of like what happens here at the beginning of this passage. Mark chapter 6, verse 7 says, Jesus sends out, called the twelve and began to send them out. So he called his disciples to him, just like he had before, and he sends them out on a, on a, on a mission. He has a, they have a ministry to do. For, for all of the Mark up to this point, the disciples have been watching Jesus. They've been watching him and learning from him. And he's the best one to learn from, right? I mean, there's nobody better to learn from, literally, than Jesus. They've been learning. And one day, when Jesus ascends back to heaven, you know, from where they are, so that's, you know, our present day, all, all the ministry is going to happen through these disciples and the people that come after them. So this is a, a good practice for what the future will hold. It's a short window. Jesus is coming back at the end of this chapter, and the focus, all the spotlight goes back on Jesus. But for this little section that we're in today, Jesus is only briefly talked about. It's about his disciples. They have, Jesus has called disciples to himself, and one day all the ministry is going to happen through them. But for this moment, the ministry is happening just as a window, kind of as a practice, a preparation for what's to come ahead. It's a rare glimpse in Mark. Mark and all the other gospel writers, they're, of course, they're all about Jesus. I mean, all the Bible is, but these are really all about Jesus. But here's a, just a half a chapter where the focus is actually on the disciples and what God does through them. And because of that, it's a direct, a direct passage to us. Because this is who we are. We are disciples of Jesus. If we've put our faith in Christ, we are the, the descendants, spiritually speaking, 
of these first disciples. And so what the disciples are called to do, the way that they're brought into this, is an invitation to us. You see, Jesus, we, we've called this, this, this series, Follow Me. Because that's what He said to the disciples at the beginning. But that invitation to follow was never an invitation only to observe Jesus. The invitation to follow Jesus has always been an invitation to participate in the ministry of Jesus. Yes, there is so much the disciples and we are supposed to learn from watching Jesus. We have to observe. We have to study. We have to learn Him. But we don't learn to follow Jesus with our feet up in a lazy boy. We learn to follow Jesus as we go. It is on-the-job training. We are following Him. The disciples literally are going all around Galilee. It seems like they never stop. They're constantly moving. And that's a picture here of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Following Jesus isn't just spiritually sitting still. Spiritually, it is on the job. We are going. We are participating. Discipleship was never meant to be only about observation. It's always been intended to be about participation. Christianity can't be learned from a distance. You don't, you don't learn to, to follow Jesus just by looking at Him from far away. You learn to follow Jesus by getting up close with Him, following Him, being right there with Him. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's an invitation to get in the game. One Christian leader, Tom Rayner, once observed that Christianity, uh, sometimes uh, Christians c- compare uh, practicing our faith to going to a football game, just to continue that sports idea. When you think about a football game, there are a few dozen guys out on a football field, right? They're playing, and they all probably could use some rest. While tens of thousands of people are in the stands, and they probably could all use a little more exercise. You know what I mean? Christianity isn't about some spectators and some professionals on the field. We're all called to be disciples, to participate, to be involved in the game. This window, this kind of snapshot of what ministry and life is going to be like after Jesus ascends is an invitation for us as you're following to recognize following isn't about observing and then one day graduating to the point where you're now participating. From the beginning, discipleship has been about involved, being involved in the game. And the primary way we're called to do that is to, to imitate Him. So, so let me ask you this, who, who are you modeling your life after? Who are you imitating? When you look, I mean, just take simple things like your job. There's probably, whatever, whatever you do, you, you probably, somebody had to teach you to do the things you do. And even if, you, if you've gotten better at it over time, there's probably still some, some habits and some mannerisms and practices, some codes you follow that somebody else taught you and you're following after them. Or take your, your parenting or the way you interact with your spouse. You probably are copying, whether it's deliberate or not, you're probably copying things that your parents did or other adults you watched and that you liked and thought, hey, that was done well and I want to do that. There's other things in your life that you have said, well, this was done really bad for me and so I want to do the exact opposite, right? But either way, you're imitating the, the negative of them or you're imitating the positive. And I find many times we imitate both the negative and the positive whether we want to or not, right? So who, who are you modeling your life after, your spiritual life? In the deepest sense, what, is, what are you modeling your life after. There's nobody better. The number one draft pick of all time, <laughs> the best one we can follow, is Jesus Christ. Now, I, I, if you followed this scripture as we read it, there's some weird things that happen here with John the Baptist. And you may have 
heard that, if that was new to you, you're thinking, what in the world's going on? Somebody got beheaded and there's a platter and, oh my goodness, you know. Well, stay with me for just a minute. But as Jesus sends out his disciples in the beginning of this passage, then the very end in verse 30, the disciples come back. And if you've been following through Mark, he has done this a lot. We've called it a Mark sandwich, where he gets two stories that are happening, and the one is the front end and the back end, and another story that interrupts. So last week, Jairus had a daughter who was sick. He gets interrupted by a woman who's been bleeding, and at the end, they heal Jairus' daughter. It's a sandwich. And so here it is. The disciples are sent out, the 12 of them, were interrupted by this story about John the Baptist being killed, and then the disciples come back. And every time Mark does that, what he wants you to do is say, these, these go together. We, we understand these stories by interpreting them and understanding them together. And so between John the Baptist and the 12 disciples, we, we learn what it looks like to truly follow Jesus. He's going to show us, between the, the two of them, the 12 going out, John the Baptist, what it means, like how to follow Jesus. But he's also going to show us some of our deepest fears and why we don't follow Jesus. What, what keeps us from following Jesus? So starting with the things that we learn and, and how to follow Jesus, there's at least three things. And you, so you don't have an outline, but uh, this is you know, you're, the, the one main takeaway, you can write, scribble in your paper somewhere, is that disciples imitate Jesus. Disciples imitate Jesus. That's the, at the core of who we are, the core of what it looks like to be a Christian, is that we are modeling our life after Jesus. Christ has saved us. He's redeemed us. He's restored us to a relationship with God. And by that power, we begin to actually follow Him. And so the first way we imitate Him is we seek the kingdom. We seek the kingdom. That's the way I'd summarize what the, what the, the, the disciples of Jesus do as they go out into ministry. They seek the kingdom of God and they do it just like Jesus did. Jesus has always been about His Father's kingdom. And so because he's always been doing it with the Father, Jesus has never done it alone. And the disciples are called to not do it alone either. You'll notice in verse 7, he says, He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. Now, if you're like me, I hear Noah's Ark there and just picture these animals going out. I don't think that's what Jesus was thinking when he sent them out two by two. It's not about you know, rep, uh, reproducing the Noah's Ark here. What he's saying is that just like Jesus has always had his heavenly Father, Jesus has always been in fellowship with God the Father. He's always been in perfect communion. So we too are created not to be alone, but to do life and to do ministry beside one another as fellow, fellow partners in the gospel. We're called to go about Jesus' ministry with faithful Christian friends. It's one thing to have friends. It's a different thing to have partners in the gospel, people who are committed to Christ like you are, who are trying to seek to encourage you to go on this human, this, this, this spiritual journey together. It can be so hard sometimes if we're trying to do it alone. Here Jesus sends out the disciples from the beginning with a partner, somebody to encourage them along the way. Sometimes circumstances get in the way and it makes it hard to have good Christian friendship. But other times, we're the ones that make it difficult. We're not a good friend, or we don't pursue friends. And so God calls us, if we're going to seek the kingdom, not to do it alone. And as we do it, to travel lightly. You'll hear in verse 8 and 9, he says, He charged them to take nothing for their journey 
except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Again, this is imitating the way Jesus himself did ministry. Luke uh, 9.58 says, And Jesus said to them, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He, he, he had no home. He was homeless and doing ministry. So Jesus is sending out his disciples, and he's sending them out even less well supplied than he could have. He could have sent them out with more, but he sent them out with less as a way of depending upon God to provide for them. When the Israelites left Egypt in the Exodus, back in the Old Testament, they went with hardly anything. They provide, God provided for them as they went. It is so easy for us, especially as Americans in our Western materialistic type world, to, to just spend our whole life accumulating stuff, isn't it? If we're going to live on mission, we've got to travel lightly. Don't get so caught up in the stuff of this world that we're bogged down by it. What is the mission? As we're going, what is the mission? Well, he says in verse 12 and 13, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And if you're following through Mark, that reads as a summary of what Jesus had been doing. And now here's the disciples, and they're doing the same thing. They're imitating Jesus. They're following him. I, I don't know about you, but that's, that's exciting. That's exciting. We, we get to participate in the ministry of Jesus himself. It starts with proclaiming and calling people to repentance. Again, it's the same thing Jesus did. Our memory verse of the month of September, Mark 1.15, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was Jesus' first sermon. And so here is the disciples. They're going out and they're proclaiming repentance. And so should we. And as much fun and as exciting it is to be a part of the ministry of, of, of Jesus, I'll tell you, that's not always fun to proclaim repentance. Because you know what you're saying? You're sinners and you need to turn from your ways. If we're going to be participants in the kingdom of God, we have to be honest about the condition of our own hearts and the condition of those around us. We are sinful people. If we keep following what we want to do in this world, we will not be following Jesus. But God has called us to turn from those things and begin to follow Him. The mission starts with proclaiming a gospel of repentance. And as we turn away from ourselves and turn to Him, there is something miraculous that happens. We are given new life. Now these first disciples physically and literally cast out demons and healed the sick just as Jesus had done. And these were physical signs of a spiritual reality that's happening. The devil is being sent away. Sickness and all the death and decay in the world is being overcome and a new kingdom is beginning. That's what the disciples get to participate in. And those first apostles, they had some unique authority as being the ones who walked with Jesus uh, in person, in, in, in real life, in, in, in the flesh there in the first century. So it's not that physical miracles can't happen today, but now we get to experience the spiritual realities those were pointing to. When we proclaim, hey, the gospel starts with repenting. When people turn and put their faith in Jesus Christ, a heart of stone turns into a heart of flesh. That's a miracle. When new life comes and people stop living for themselves and start living for something better, that is a miracle. There is spiritual healing, a spiritual miracle that happens every time somebody 
turns from their old ways and begins to follow Him. I tell you, that will never happen on somebody's own strength. That will never happen by any human power. That will only happen by the power of God Himself. And so those miracles absolutely continue today. Spiritual healing takes place when we as followers of Jesus have a past full of all kinds of things and those things are healed. Things like shame and guilt and grief begin to heal in our hearts when we follow Jesus. He can heal our minds of thinking we're not good enough and we're we're too ashamed of who we were and where we've been and all that we've done. He begins to heal us. And that is a miracle. That is a miracle. That's the kind of work we're called to do. Not because we have any power, but because we know the one who does. And he's at work in us and through us because we're following him. And we're seeking to imitate him. And to bring the kingdom of God just as Jesus did. When we go out on mission for Jesus, we're not going alone. We're going with partners in the gospel. We travel lightly, not concerned about the things of this world as much as we're concerned about the kingdom of God. We go proclaiming repentance And we go desiring the the spiritual miracles of new life and healing. And that all sounds well and good, doesn't it? But you should know that's a very dangerous thing to do. It's a very dangerous mission to go on. And there are so many fears that we'll have to confront along the way. And this next account, the one of John the Baptist, helps us confront those. Because here's the disciples going out. He describes in general what they do, but then he comes and describes one specific account of John the Baptist. If you know John the Baptist's story, he's actually a cousin of Jesus who was born six months before Jesus, and he prepared the way. He was a prophet, one like Elijah, who came and prepared the way. And his whole ministry was about pointing people to Jesus. So even though he's not one of the twelve, he is kind of like, he is one of the followers of Jesus, and that his whole life was about pointing to Jesus. So this story of John the Baptist's death serves as a way of understanding what it, what it looks like as a disciple. If we're going to go on this mission, what it, what it might look like if we're going to follow Jesus with everything. Je- John the Baptist was uh, calling out the sin of one of the rulers of that day. His name was Herod. This is Herod Antip- uh, Ant- Ant- Antip- Antipas. There we go, Antipas. And Herod was not a moral man. He was not a follower of God. In fact, he had taken his brother's wife, probably by adultery, uh, but then he probably divorced his wife after that, married his sister-in-law, and to make matters worse, if we go read the history, this isn't included in Mark 5, but that woman, uh, Herodias, was actually his niece. So there's a lot of problems with what's going on here. And John the Baptist called it like he saw it. He, he said, this, this is not okay. This is not okay. Um, verse 18, John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John called out Herod in his sin. He was proclaiming a gospel of repentance, even to the highest level. He's saying, this isn't okay. You can't keep living in sin. He preached just like the disciples did. He preached repentance. And when he did, he shows us just how much it might cost us. Here's the second way disciples imitate Jesus. We choose holiness over popularity. 
choose holiness over popularity. John the Baptist, like Jesus, would not have made a very good politician. <laughs> Neither one of these guys could have won a popular vote. We, we like Jesus. We think of Jesus in a very positive way. It, in their day, <laughs> these guys, they both get killed. These were not popular people. At times they drew crowds, but by the end of their lives, they are scaring people <laughs> away. We've already seen earlier in Mark how Jesus' teachings and miracles offended religious leaders. So they're seeking to kill him. Now Jesus, later on, is going to face the same thing that, Mark, I mean, that, that John describes here now. So John the Baptist, he began by saying that, action, that Herod's actions were sinful, uh, and Herod's wife, Herodias, is mad. So in verse 17, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now, we thankfully don't have to face that same type of persecution. We have a, a freedom of speech. We can practice openly what we believe. We, I know we don't have a sign out there right now because it's being we're getting a new one, but we can announce to people, we're a church, and here, you, anybody's welcome. We can do this freely, and we're thankful for that. So we don't, there, but, but there are many people around the world, even today and throughout history, who not just for religious reasons, but any number of reasons, if they say something against the guy who's in charge, they lose their life. You know, they can relate to what John had to go through here. We don't face that kind of persecution right now, but we do face a temptation to not say popular things. There's a temptation to go with the flow, whatever the flow may be, whatever direction that may go. As Christians, we're called to holiness over popularity. There is a stream running through our lives, and sometimes we're, we're like fish. You're asking a fish, how's the water? And the fish is like, what's water? You know, they, they, it's just the water they're swimming in. They don't know. Sometimes we, even as Christians, are caught up in a cultural flow that everybody I know is saying this, and so I'm just going to keep going along. And we never stop and say, am I doing what's right? Am I doing just what everybody else around me is doing? So it's going to take some homework. We can't just assume we know what the Bible says. Stop and ask, does the Bible address this issue? What does it say? And how do I follow Christ in this issue? And when God says it, when we know it, stand up for it. Even if the powerful people around you are saying it's wrong, if God says it's right, it's right. And maybe the first things that come into your mind are hot-button political issues, and that's, that's important. But make sure you stand up for what's right, and make sure that goes into your own hearts, deep into your own hearts. Stand for personal holiness. Stand for character. Stand for integrity. Stand for honesty. In a world that's all about me first and my priorities and what I want, choose to live selfless, selflessly to humble ourselves before others and honestly seek their interest above our own. Be willing to be patient in a right now world. Those things are so countercultural that people are going to say, you're, you're going upstream. What's going on, man? Stand up for what, is matter, what matters. If you're a person of your word, if, you, if you're a person of integrity, then people, people are going to notice because that's, that's different. John, John was imprisoned for calling a sin a sin. He called it like he saw it. And Jesus warned that his disciples might have to face the same kind of trouble that John faced. In verse 11, he told them when he sent them out, If any place will not receive you, 
uh, and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Shaking the dust off was a way of saying, I'm not even taking the dirt with me from this place. I'm, I'm leaving it behind. I'm giving it all over to God. Tim, Tim Keller calls this being selectively offensive, and I like that. The disciples are called to be selectively offensive. As Christians, we have to be offensive, but in the right way to the Christians, I mean, to, to the non-Christian world around us. Some people we know, and, and maybe you're one of these, you're offensive just all the time. That's not for being a Christian, just, just being obnoxious, you know what I mean? Like, we, can, we know, we all have experienced that. And people may say, you know, one with the other, but we're, we're not called to just be offensive for offensive's sake. But when the Bible is clear on something, we've got to be willing to take a stand, and sometimes that will be offensive. Be offensive where the Bible has already offended you. That's a good place to start. And if the Bible has never offended you, you're probably not reading it closely enough. You know what I mean? Like, really take a deep dive, and you'll see, hey, this is going to be offensive to everybody. See what the Bible says about your money. Look deeply at what the Bible says about your purity. Study deeply what the Bible says about how you're supposed to use your tongue, the words that come out of your mouth, and how you're supposed to treat your spouse. And let that humble you. And when you've been humbled by the Word of God, then it will help you point other people to the Word of God that they too might be humbled. Let our proclamation of the cross of Christ be offensive. It's offensive enough on its own. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. They say, how, how could you possibly preach a guy who died as your Savior? And we say, amen. It's exactly what we're preaching. It's upside down and backwards, and so many people can't understand it. But our message, at its very core, by calling people to repentance, it is offensive. Now notice that Herod imprisoned John because his wife was offended at his teaching, but Herod was actually attracted to his message. Verse 20, it says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was righteous, a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So picture this. Herod's got John in prison, and yet he kept pulling him out of prison, to, uh, right there in the court or whatever, to continue to hear John's message. John is in prison for calling Herod a sinner, and Herod calls him out and is like, hey, I want to hear that again. Come here. Uh, tell me more about this. Tell me more about how I'm a sinner. How does that happen? How is somebody offensive and attractive at the same time? Well, the way that happens is by the gospel, and that's exactly what we're called to be. You see, we're not offensive by our personality. We're not offensive by just, you know, rubbing people the wrong way. We're actually attractive and winsome in our message. But it does so in a way that cuts against the grain of our hearts and begins to pierce deep in us. Many of us trend one way or the other, right? We either never offend anybody because we want to please people, or we tend to overly offend people. This is a tightrope that's really hard to walk. But John is doing it here. He's offensive in the right ways and attractive and winsome and compelling and interesting in the right ways. John the Baptist uniquely found a way to do both. And one of the reasons John is so compelling to Herod is that John is the exact opposite of Herod. You read through this and here's John and Herod and I could not be more different. John, uh, in verse 20, it says that he is perplexed by John. And I love this word. Look at this word. The opposite of the original word here means to move firmly in one direction. So the opposite of that is to be just stagnant and, and, and confused. That's where Herod is. The most powerful man in the region. 
He can, he can do what he wants. He, we're going to see he just ends people's life at you know, snap of fingers. But he is perplexed by John because there's something so compelling about his message, so interesting, so intriguing that he's, he's dumbfounded. He's just stuck like his feet are in quicksand. He can't go where he wants to go. He's perplexed by him because John has a message and he's got conviction. He's got a backbone and Herod has none of that. Herod has none of that. Herod doesn't stand for anything and he's thrown off by this guy who's willing to give up his life for what he believes. There's an opportunity that comes that brings us all to the forefront. Herod has a birthday and as somebody who's powerful and wants to be perceived as powerful, he throws his own banquet and he invites all the, the most important people, the richest people and the people, the nobles, the people that are well respected and has a tremendous banquet. And as a part of that, he, his own uh, stepdaughter comes in and dances for this group of people. And it pleases everybody. And so Herod is one, one more step of bravado, wanting to impress everybody. He says, you know, to his young daughter, uh, yeah, daughter-in-law or da- stepdaughter, he says, you can have anything you want, honey, up to half my kingdom. And it's his way of just showing off and say, hey, even if they take away half my kingdom, I'm still fine. It, he didn't mean it, but he's just trying to impress people. And so trying to say, hey, even if you took half of everything, it wouldn't even hurt me. But she goes back, talks to her mom, and they come up with one thing that will hurt him. She comes back and he asks for John the Baptist's head, for John to be killed. Herod is exceedingly sorry, it says in verse 26. But he's not sorry enough to say no. He sinned by making this audacious claim, audacious promise, but he sinned again by taking an innocent man's life. And he did so under the premise that he's just, oh, I'm just keeping my word. And I, and, but, but it says he did it because of his vow and because of his guests. He didn't want to disappoint. He didn't want to look weak. He didn't want to look like he, he didn't know what he was doing. Here's John the Baptist, a man of conviction, a man willing to stand up for what's right and to go to, to his own death for what he believes. And here is Herod, who has all the marks of power in this world and yet is weak and spineless. And when you see them together, you see what really matters in this world. Choose holiness over popularity. Follow somebody who matters. Stand up for something who matters. If we just get steamrolled by the world and live like the world, then we may get some power in this world and it will be worth nothing. It will be worth nothing. Herod didn't live for what's right. He lived for the approval of man. He lived for himself. He lived for his own power and his own wealth. And if he's, he's avoiding embarrassment in front of people at all, he, he doesn't want to be embarrassed. He wants to do his own thing. But for one, for John, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't go along with the world. We, we don't live for people's approval. We live for an audience of one. We live for Jesus. We imitate Him and Him alone. So we fear Him and Him alone. John the Baptist was willing to stand up for what's right, say what's right, do what's right, even when it was wildly unpopular. And in doing so, it cost him his very life. The last way the disciples imitate Jesus is we're called to be willing to give it all. Be willing to give it all. Herod was so perplexed and stunned by John's boldness because this man was willing to give up his life for what he believed, and Herod had never seen that. 
Just a few chapters from now, Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, If anyone would come after me and deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does a man profit to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Herod was trying to gain the world. In the process, he lost his soul. John the Baptist was willing to give up his life. In the process, he saved his soul. For those who have read ahead to the end of Mark's gospel, or the end of any of the gospels, you'll see that this story with, Jesus, with, with John sounds awfully familiar and awfully similar to the story of Jesus at the end of the gospel. One, read, one commentator said that John's death cast an ominous shadow over the rest of the gospel. In both cases, John and Jesus are hated and even feared for their holiness and their teachings. Both of them are arrested on completely phony charges. Both are clearly innocent of any crime and certainly innocent of anything deserving death. Both men are sentenced to death by a reluctant government official. Both Herod and Pilate know that John and Jesus are innocent and they hesitate to have them killed, but both times they cave to the pressure of the people around them and sentence this man to a death, and not just any death, but both times to a very gory, gruesome death. The followers in both cases of John and Jesus come and take the body and bury it in a grave. John is a foreshadow of what's to come with Jesus. The similarities are almost mind-boggling. It's almost like you look back and say, hey, God must have planned it this way. But of course, there's one major difference in there. Jesus comes back. Jesus resurrects on the third day. And He proved once and for all that He is, in fact, the Son of God. He proves that He has the authority and the power over all life and death. And He proved that everything that He taught was true. It means that the death that Jesus died was for you and for me. And all who believe in Him have that spiritual new life, the miraculous new life in Christ. And listen to how that impacts everything we've said this morning. If we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then we are fully accepted in God's eyes. And if we are fully accepted in God's eyes, then the temptation that Herod was caving to won't tempt us anymore. Herod was tempted to, he's got to please people. Whereas John the Baptist was willing to give everything because he knew the only one who mattered was fully pleased with him. You and I will never live for God as long as we are seeking the approval of people. But when we live for an audience of one, we'll seek His kingdom. We'll choose holiness over popularity. And we'll be willing to give it all. We don't need the approval of the world, the stuff of the world, all the stuff around us. We have Jesus. And if we have Him, what else do we need? If God Almighty says, you are my son, you are my daughter, I am well pleased, then what other word of accolation do we need? What other word of compliment do we need from people around us? The only questions left is, will you get in the game? Are you on the sidelines? Are you in the stands? Are you willing to get on the field and participate? You don't have to graduate. You don't have to wait. You're not sitting on the sidelines until you're ready. Today is the day. 
to follow Jesus, not in the lazy boy, but on the field, following Him with feet on the ground, boots on the ground, following Him wherever He sends you. Because He's got a mission, He's got a plan, and He wants you to be a part of it, to proclaim His kingdom, to seek His holiness and His justice and His love and His mercy wherever you go, and to proclaim repentance that leads to everlasting life. That's what disciples do, because that's what Jesus did. And disciples imitate Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing it is to see your disciples' heart at work, knowing, God, that they have no power on their own, comforts us because we know we have no power on our own. God, we come to you empty, weak, sinful, selfish, and fully dependent upon your grace. God, we pray that the same power that empowered John the Baptist to stand trial against the most powerful man around, that same power would be at work in us, not to be offensive for offensive's sake, but for the sake of pointing to the cross, for the sake of pointing to something greater than this world has to offer. God, show us, show us, I beg, what it means to follow you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. God, may we leave the stuff of this world behind. Love people and love you like only you can empower us to do. During the closing song, I want to invite you to respond. If you have not put your faith in Christ and turn from your sins, believe in Him for salvation and begin a journey following Jesus forever. It'll be miraculous. It'll be supernatural. It'll be costly, but it'll be worth it. If you know Him already, how is God calling you to take a, a step forward, not to be perplexed and stuck like in quicksand, but, be, but to actually following Jesus? Where, where is He calling you to take a step of faith to live out your faith, to share your faith? What does it look like to get in the game? Ask God those kind of questions for your own life today. Let Jesus answer them. Listen to His voice and follow Him. Father, we confess we're sinners in need of grace. So, Lord, continue to show us that grace that we may follow you all the days of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.